Cornelius Plantinger recounts a story by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. In this story, Kierkegaard tells of a packed theater. Many people had crammed into this theater to watch this play. And a fire broke out in the back of the theater. So one of the actors rushed on stage and shouted, the theater is on fire, get out. Uh, The audience nodded their heads and giggled a bit, but did not move. And the actor continued to plead with them, you need to get out. But they looked at one another and winked knowingly. And the more he pled, the more they turned to one another and said, he's a really good actor. He's a fine actor. And eventually they stood up to applaud him. They would not move because they did not believe. And they did not believe because they did not see. We who are Christians are called to believe in what we cannot see. We're called to believe in an invisible God, in an invisible realm, heaven. We are called to believe that which we do not see. The book of Hebrews describes this as faith. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, as he concludes this chapter in verse 32 to 39, is encouraging believers who were considering turning away from Christ and the faith because of persecution. And what he does in chapter 10, 32 to 39, is that he reminds them of the great struggle that they had with suffering when they became Christians initially when they were converted. How they endured a great contest with suffering. They were maligned, marginalized. They were verbally abused. They were physically abused. And in fact, their enemies even confiscated their properties. And yet the writer says that they received all of this with joy because they knew they had a better and an enduring possession which is in heaven. The writer tells them in verse 38 that the way to endure is by faith. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. He ends in verse 39 of chapter 10 with the conf- on a confident note that they will continue to have faith in God and preserve their souls. That is, they will continue to trust and they will be saved. In chapter 11, because he has been dealing with the subject of faith, he picks up this theme of faith. And we have in chapter 11 one of the most extensive discussions in Scripture on the subject of faith. The writer could have gone immediately to chapter 12, where you see there's a continuation between the end of chapter 10 and chapter 12, verse 1. He could have gone on to talk about endurance because he's been talking about endurance at the end of chapter 10. But he stops in chapter 11 
to ruminate on this matter of faith because of the signal importance, the, the, the massive importance of faith to the Christian life. Because what he's intending to tell them is that the life that they are to live as a Christian can only be lived by faith. Now, very briefly, chapter 10 deals extensively with the great heroes of the Old Testament who were people of faith. We find in verses 3 to 7, for instance, that he deals with, with those who trusted in God, those who were possessors of faith, those who were in the early history of salvation history. Then he moves from these to the faith of Abraham and the patriarchs, and the faith of those who lived in the Mosaic era up until the time of Joshua. Then he moves to the faith of those from the time of the judges until the coming of Christ. And then after that, he concludes the epistle or the chapter in this epistle. But what I want us to do is to focus necessarily upon the first seven verses. And what I want us to consider is, first of all, as the writer would have us look, at the nature of faith. Secondly, I want us to look at the notable examples or illustrations of faith that are listed in these verses. And finally, at the necessity of faith. Well, then, the nature of faith. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we have one of the clearest statements or definitions of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's quite a mouthful. These two terms, substance and evidence, have been variously translated and particularly translated as assurance and conviction. And thus you may read the verse in this way, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The writer will make clear that faith is not merely then an intellectual belief, that biblical faith is solid assurance and conviction. But more can be said about this definition of faith. The writer speaks of faith as a substance or the assurance of things hoped for. That's referring to the future. That's referring to the promises of God. The things that they hope for are the things that God has promised. He says that faith is the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. So faith, he's linking faith to the promises of God because there are things that they are hoping for, and he's linking faith to the future, to the invisible things, because it is the conviction of things not seen. When we then put all this back together, we might come up with a working definition of faith. And I want to suggest to you that from these two parts of the verse, which are, in fact, saying essentially the same thing, the writer signals that faith is a solid assurance and conviction in God's promises and in unseen realities. Faith 
is the solid assurance and conviction in God's promises and broadly in his unseen realities. These promises, these unseen realities that faith takes hold of as real, even though they cannot be seen. Some of these the writer has already outlined in the epistle and others will follow. But these unseen realities, these future promises that faith lays hold of, include the resurrection from the dead. It includes the promise of the Sabbath rest in chapter 4. It includes eternal inheritance in chapter 6 and verse 9, chapter 9 and 15. It includes the heavenly Jerusalem and the unshakable kingdom that, we, that he talks about in chapter 12, 28. You see, faith is that solid assurance and conviction that it will receive God's future promises that the unseen realities will indeed one day become visible. This faith, this assurance in God's promises and the invisible realities should not be confused with blind faith. It is not to be confused with a Kierkegaardian leap, a leap, a trusting without evidence, a desperate jump in a dark space. This kind of faith must not even be seen as mere credulity, that propensity to believe things easily, or that gullibility. You see, faith is not gullibility. No, this faith of which he speaks, that faith which trusts in God's promises and his invisible realities, uh, is a faith that rests on three, at least three conditions. First of all, this kind of faith that trusts God's future realities, the invisible realities, depends upon the character of God. Scripture, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, 23 says, God is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The reason... Believers can trust in invisible realities like heaven, like a resurrection body, like a future inheritance. It is because God who has promised these things cannot lie. God is faithful. Not only is God faithful, but God also possesses all power to accomplish everything that he has promised. Because he is omnipotent. This kind of faith. Arresting upon God's promises, upon his invisible realities, rests not only upon the character of God, but it rests upon the weakness of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, if you were to pursue this, uh, what the writer of Hebrews says about the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology may not be given the prominent place in Hebrew, but it is there. And when the writer speaks of the Spirit, he speaks of the Spirit as God's witness. We take, for instance, what he says of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 4. He says that God witnessed to Israel in the wilderness through signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Spirit. That God was using the gifts produced by the Holy Spirit 
to witness to his people of his care, of his grace, of his love for them. The writer of Hebrews also speaks of the Spirit of God bearing witness. He says that the structure of the Old Testament tabernacle in chapter 9, that there is the holy place and the most holy place. He says even the way the Old Testament tabernacle was structured, the Holy Spirit was witnessing that the way of access into the presence of God was not yet universally accessible to the people of God. He was bearing witness even through the tabernacle and its structure. Perhaps more pertinently, regarding the role of the Spirit in bearing witness, is what he says in chapter 10, verses 15 to 17, where the Spirit is said to bear witness regarding the blessing of the new covenant. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he has said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, the believer's faith in God's promises, in the invisible, unseen realities, rests upon the fact that the Holy Spirit testifies. Yes, we trust the character of God. We trust the Word of God. If He says, I'm going to bless you, then we believe that because God does not lie. But also, His Spirit is also witnessing, bearing witness in our hearts of the reality of God, of the reality of the life to come. You see, only a man or woman who is truly converted can understand the witness of the Spirit of God. We know that these realities are true, not only because of the witness of the Spirit to our hearts, but because of the present exaltation of Christ in heaven. Hebrews begins with Locating Jesus Christ, the Christ who lived for 33 years on earth. The Christ who died and rose and whom in the first chapter of the book of Acts, the disciples who were gathered with him saw him ascend into heaven and a cloud took him out of sight. Where the writer of Hebrews says that where he went is no mystery because he's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's seated in heaven. That's where he went. And you see, it is because of Christ's presence in heaven. The realm from which he came, and the realm to which he has returned, that we can believe in a spiritual reality. Look, it would be a very difficult thing to believe in heaven if Jesus Christ has not, was not raised from the dead, passed through the heavens, that is, the physical sphere, into the spiritual sphere, heaven itself. And so we hold these unseen realities, the promises of God as real, faith holds them as real because of God's character, because of the testament of the Spirit, and because of Christ's present exaltation in heaven. Now faith, the writer tells us, in this unseen reality. This kind of faith received God's approval in old time or in, in the olden days. For in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, For by it, that is this faith, which he describes as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
This faith would trust in God's promises and trust in the unseen realities. He says, by it, this faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. And then he's going to go and talk about that in verse 4. He also goes on to show that this faith in the invisible realm lies at the heart of the belief in God as creator. In verse 3, by faith, we understand that the worlds, that is the universe, were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made from things which are visible. What he's doing in verse 3 is giving us an illustration that genuine faith believes in that which is invisible to the eye. And one of the ways he proves that is by our belief in God as creator. The book of Genesis opens without, I beg your pardon, without introduction. It does not explain God's existence. It simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Without apology. And the Bible teaches us that God created the heavens and the earth by his divine fiat. By his spoken word. It didn't take God any kind of work. He was not exhausted on the seventh day. He simply spoke the universe into existence. He created the world by his word, ex nihilo, that is out of nothing. He did not have pre-existent material by which then he brings the world into being. There was nothing. He called life out of nothing. Now, those who are scientific will say, but this does not make sense. Faith in God as creator doesn't make sense. But I want you to recognize that all of the cosmologies, that is, all of the interpretations of how creation came into being throughout the centuries must be received by faith. See, there are, there are today those who will say that this world came into existence through the process of evolution. But that takes faith. Evolution is a theory that requires faith. I, and I would suggest to you it requires more faith to believe in evolution than to believe in God as creator. Because there is nothing in our experience that can explain how a creation could exist by itself. And by the way, there is no such thing as infinite regression of causes. And if you say, well, how did life on earth come about? And you say, well, by the Big Bang. And you ask, well, how did the Big Bang, Big Bang come about? Uh, very few answers are there. And you ask, well, whatever triggered that thing that triggered the Big Bang? What triggered it? Well, you can't keep going back and back and back. You see, it takes great faith to think that this marvelously structured universe somehow came out of nothing. You see, there are ways in which we can know things. We, we know things in a variety of ways. When it comes to concern, this whole question of epistemology, how do we know? How do we know something? Well, there are various sources. First of all, we can know by experience. Mom and dad tells you, don't touch the hot stove. But you are too brilliant. 
you don't believe, and you go and touch the hot stove, what happens? You are burnt, and I, I, and I suggest to you that for the rest of your life, you won't do it again. Well, you know by experience. You also know by testing, by measurement, by research, by scientific methodology and processes, by empirical data. But there's another way of knowing that is by revelation. You, you know, you happen to be walking on Young Street and you meet somebody who you, were, you went to high school with and the, the fellow comes up to you and tells you, you know, can I just tell you something I haven't seen in a long time? I think I need to tell you that when you were in high school, you were quite annoying. Or, conversely, if they can't say it about you, so when, you know, can I tell you, when, when you were in high school, I had a crush on you? Well, there's no way you're going to know that you were either annoying or attractive to that individual unless he reveals it. And this truth that is revealed is no different, no less, no lesser than truth that are scientific. It's just that there are different approaches, different methods by which truth is gleaned. And we know that God is creator because he has revealed it by his word. He has revealed it in our hearts. And we accept that evidence on the basis of faith because we trust in the character of God. So my argument then first is simply that faith is that solid assurance in the future promises of God, essentially in his invisible realities. The first thing he does then is tell us about the nature of faith. is trusting in God's invisible reality. The second thing he does in the text then at verse 4, is he gives us notable examples, illustrations of people who trusted. Time magazine has a list of the 100 greatest men and women of the 20th century. And the first person on that list of the greatest people in the 20th century is Albert Einstein. And then Franklin D. Roosevelt. Mahatma Gandhi follows in third position. And then Muhammad Ali. And a few places down are the inescapable Beatles. Can't get rid of them, can't stop hearing their songs on the radio. Wherever we turn, the Beatles are there. The world has its list of great men and women. And the Bible has a list of great men and women. But these who are seen as great in the eyes of God, are not necessarily those who were powerful enough themselves or who necessarily accomplished great things. The Bible considers them great because of their implicit faith in the invisible, nevertheless real God. And what the writer does in verse 4, now he begins to list people of old who were people of faith. The first example of faith that he brings is that of Abel. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. This story of Abel occurs in Genesis 4. We see that sin has been 
let loose upon the world by Adam and Eve. And now it has taken hold of Adam's descendant, particularly Cain. The narrative, the Old Testament narrative, tells us that these two sons of Adam and Eve brought offerings to God. Cain brought fruits, whereas Abel brought the best of his animal to God. And the narrative says that God received the offering of Abel, but rejected the offering of Cain. As a result, Cain became angry. And God, seeing this dark, brooding mood coming over Cain, warns him. He says to him, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching like a raging, ravenous beast at the door of your heart, and you must master it. But Cain rejects the advice of God. He invites Abel into the field, and he kills him. The question that has been at least asked on many occasions is, why did God reject the offering of Cain, but receive the offering of Abel? And some people have said in their brilliance, it is because God does not like fruits. Others have said because God requires sacrifice, blood sacrifice. But the writer of Hebrews says neither of these is true. That the basis upon which God accepted Abel's sacrifice is faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He did not take it for granted that what he offered was good enough. But he went trusting in the mercy and the grace of God that God would receive him and receive his gift. And the Bible says that he was considered to be righteous because God does not receive the sacrifice, of course, of the wicked. And Abel, though he is dead, he's still speaking because his faith, which prompted his gift, is still being spoken of and recorded in the Scriptures. Abel, then, is an example, the first example, of one who finds acceptance with God on the basis of faith. But in verse 5, we come to a second example of faith in the early history of salvation, and that is Enoch. Enoch is an interesting character. Not much is said about him, but whatever is said about him in the record there in Genesis 5 is monumental. Because in Genesis chapter 5, we see the the threat of God coming to fruition. The soul that sins will die. Adam had lived hundreds of years before death came into the world. But come it did. And in chapter 5 of Genesis, we see the awful consequence of sin that is death. There is this ubiquitous refrain. This man lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. This man lived so many years, had so many children, and he died. And there in the record we see there's a man who interrupts this litany of death. 
Because in chapter 5, verse 18 to 24, we hear that there was a man whose name was Enoch. And when he turned 65, when he got to the age of retirement, he just began to walk with God. And he walked with God for three centuries, 300 years. And the Bible says that God took him. That is, he did not die. The Lord translated him from this life into heaven. You know the children's story about this man Enoch. This girl went home from Sunday school and her mother asked her, what did you learn in Sunday school? She said, well, I learned about Enoch. Well, what did you learn about Enoch? Well, she says, Enoch was a friend of God. And they used to take walks, sometimes very long walks. And one day they went for a very long walk. And they walked, and they walked, and they walked on and on and on and on until Enoch came close to God's home. And then God turned to Enoch and said, well, since you are so far away from home and you're closer to my home, won't you come over? And Enoch went over and never left. God took him. The writer says that the basis upon which he was translated into heaven is faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. The writer also explains that before the Lord had translated Enoch from this life to the heavenly eternal life, that he pleased God. And this matter of pleasing God is synonymous with walking with God. He walked in the same direction with God. He kept God's company. He sought to please the Lord. You see, walking with God is pleasing God. But how did he please God and how was he translated? He was on the basis of a life of faith. What made Enoch different from his contemporaries was not his tremendous spirituality, but was because he trusted in God. He lived by faith and God took him. That's an amazing, that's that's an amazing story, this man, Enoch. In verse 7, we find a third Old Testament example of faith. Noah, a story that we know so very well. The writer says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, and underline that, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became Heir the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah is interesting because he represents the futurity of faith. That is the future aspect of faith. Faith is future looking. See, Noah lived in a time when wickedness was awash on earth. The account in Genesis 6 is ghastly. It is shocking because the writer, Moses, says that at that time in in Genesis 6, every thought of the heart was evil continually. Every time men thought about something, every time they planned to do something, it was always evil. And God was grieved and God decided that he was going to destroy the earth 
And yet there was a man there who found grace. He didn't do anything to receive grace. You see, grace is never earned. Noah did not earn grace. God gave it to him freely. And the Lord appeared to him and warned him that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood. But Noah had never seen a flood. Yet, in reverent fear, he built an ark. And I, and I, I know that there is a movie out called Noah. I, I, I can almost guarantee it is, it is, well, it is false, at least does not follow the biblical narrative. Noah had never seen a flood. But based upon the bare word of God, God having predicted in the future a flood, he made preparation for his family and for himself. And consequently, he condemned the world in its unbelief and delivered his family. And the writer says he became an ear of righteousness. He became then a prototype of those who believe in God and are accounted righteous. Here we have three examples. One of Abel who God receives on the basis of faith. Second, we have Enoch who is translated out of this life into the next life on the basis of faith. And one who delivers himself and delivers his family simply on the basis of faith. What the writer then is indicating is that not only is faith trusting in God's invisible reality, that faith, that same faith, was practiced by men and women of old. We've seen the nature of faith in verse 1. We have seen in verses 4 all the way to 7 the notable, noteworthy examples of faith now we want to briefly look at the necessity of faith. In verse 6, the writer lays out a universal principle. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I want to suggest to you that this verse, verse 6, is not only though there is a close relationship with this verse and Enoch's faith, it applies to all. It is impossible for anyone at any time to please God without faith. And the faith that pleases God consists of two things. First, it must consist of a belief that God exists. For he who comes to God, he who draws near to God, must believe that God exists. When the writer says we must believe that he exists, he's not dealing with a nebulous figment of man's mind. He's speaking about the God who he reveals in this epistle as the powerful God, the one who created the universe by his word, the one who is glorious in his splendor, the one who exercises sovereign reign and dominion over all his creatures. This God that we must believe exists 
is the one the writer of Hebrews says all things are naked before his eyes. That he is the judge of all men. It's a fearful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the God, the powerful God. But this God that they must believe exists is not only the powerful God, he is the personal God because he's a speaking God. He has spoken in time past to the fathers and the prophets, but in these days he has spoken finally in his Son. He's spoken in Christ, he's spoken in the Scripture, he has spoken through the Spirit. This God is a personal God because every son he receives, the writer of Hebrews says, he disciplines, he scourges for their holiness. But he's a personal God because he invites his people to come boldly to his throne of grace that they might receive mercy and grace to help them in the times of need. He's a personal God because he has made Jesus Christ high priest over the house of God. And he has entered into a covenant, a new covenant, in which his law has been placed in their hearts, in which he has taken away and removed all their sins. This God that they must believe who exists is powerful and personal. But you see, the faith that pleases God not only consists of belief that God exists, it entails belief that he rewards those who diligently seek him. The faith that God looks for in people is a faith that perceives that God is fundamentally generous. That he rewards those who pursue him, those who seek him, those who with a single eye and determination devote themselves to him, that he rewards them. He rewards them with the blessings of life. He rewards them, more importantly, with himself. For there is no greater reward that God can give to man than himself. And so the writer could say that he is his exceeding joy in Psalm 43, verse 4. He is the portion of his people. You see, those who trust in God must believe that God exists. Those who come to him and seek him must believe that they will find him and that he will reward them in his grace. And so we have seen from our text that faith is certain confidence and assurance in God's promises and in his invisible realities that men of old trusted in God and were accepted by him, were translated and were saved, they and their families, and that without faith is impossible to please God. My friends, let me draw a few conclusions and, and then finish. The passage stresses that faith, genuine faith, assurance in God's invisible promises is normative for the people of God. Over and over again, 18 times in chapter 11, the writer says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Why? Why does he keep on repeating by faith? It is because he wants to make a singular, simple point. That faith has always been the way the people of God have lived before God. Or put it in a different way. He says by faith, by faith. Because God's people 
have always lived by faith. He says, you go back to the earliest time of human history. You look at those who were known as saints of old and what characterized them was a genuine trust in God. They trusted in God even when they could not see. And this same faith is required of you, he's saying to the writers, to the, the readers of Hebrew. Our Lord Jesus insisted that life must be lived by faith. Thomas When he heard that Christ was raised from the dead, he said, unless I see his hands, and unless I put my finger in the nail prints, and unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And one day when he was there with the other disciples, Jesus comes through the door. He didn't open the door, he just materialized through the closed door. And he says to Thomas, Put your hand or put your finger in my hand, in the nail prints, and put your hand in my side. Blessed are those who have not seen but have believed. The Apostle Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. He continues, he says we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You and I are called to live by faith. This living by faith is countercultural. We are essentially in the 21st century materialist. We believe, at least we claim to believe, only in the things that we can see and feel and touch and hear. We are governed by sensory impulses. But you see, there is a world that lies outside of the grip and the gaze of human eyes. There is another world in which God dwells. A world where God's power is being revealed. And you and I are told to look beyond this horizon into the other world where God dwells. I want you to know that this kind of faith Faith in the unseen unseen and invisible realities is a supernatural gift. It is not something that you and I conjure up. It is not that Abel and Enoch and Noah somehow had faith latently positioned in their heart and just call it up into being. It was given of them, given to them by God. Paul tells us, for by grace have you been saved through faith and not that of yourselves It is the gift of God. And this faith that we have received is God's gift. But this gift has been purchased by Christ. It is because Christ is our Redeemer. It is because Christ went to the cross, took our sins. It is because he was cruelly nailed to the cross and suffered and died in my place and in your place. It is because he shed his blood. It is because he forgave our sins and brought us a new covenant that we have the blessing of repentance and forgiveness. What I'm trying to indicate is that any spiritual blessing we have is being purchased by Jesus Christ of the cross. This faith must therefore be exercised. You and I must trust in Jesus Christ. We must have a faith in Christ like Noah did. A faith 
that is an obedient faith. Paul, writing to the Romans, brackets the entire epistle of Romans by the concept, the obedience of faith. You see, faith is linked to obedience. There's an obedience that is rooted in faith. That anyone who truly believes will submit and surrender to Christ. I wonder this morning, do you truly believe? Do you believe in Christ? Have you come to the obedience of faith? Are you trusting solely upon Christ? Because you are demanded by Scripture, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It is not by our works, but by believing that we are saved. And you are to obey Christ by surrendering to him, by trusting his death on the cross and your sins will be forgiven and you'll be saved for now and for eternity. You must possess that faith that Noah did, that trusted in God's word and was declared righteous, became an heir of righteousness. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, God will declare you today an heir of righteousness. You will be declared right before God, forgiven of your sins, justified for eternity. But I want to make it very clear as we close. Faith must be in Jesus Christ. You must believe. And if you do not believe, there is no neutrality. You are an unbeliever. And the Bible makes it very clear that hell is for those who are unbelieving. You must trust in Jesus Christ with all your heart. As best as you know, you must lean upon him and embrace his salvation. Turn from your sins and trust in his grace and you will be saved. But let me make this clear one more time. Faith is the only way to please God. You see, if you truly believe and rest in God and his promises, you please him. Faith, someone says, is the heart hanging on to God. And you must hang on to God with your heart. You must trust in him. You must not live by sight. How how are you going to know the working of God in your heart and life? How are you going to overcome sin and the world? It is by faith in God and the power of God. How are you going to see your children converted, your society change? How are you going to see the movement of God in your home, in your life, and in your church? It is only by looking to God to do the impossible. It is only when you say, Lord, we have not the strength, but you are able. You see, this is the kind of faith that God seeks. That when we come and say, Lord, we have no other way, we do not know where to turn, but the answer lies in you. When you say to God, I cast myself only upon your grace, and I know that you are good, and you reward those who trust you, Lord, will you not help? That's the faith that God blesses. You want to see movement in your life, growth in spiritual graces, progress in the Christian life. You want to see God moving in your home and in the society. You must be people of faith. Listen, ask God for big things and trust him for big things because he is a big God. How did men of old overcome? How did they overcome the troubles and the trials of their lives? They did it not in themselves, but in God alone. And if you trust in him, you will have his power 
to do the things you must do now, here and now in this life. If you trust in him, he will one day do what he did for Enoch, for you. He will translate you in the twinkling of an eye. You will be taken up and captured up to be with Jesus Christ. May he bless you for his name's sake. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord, we will trust you. We will say like that poor man whose son was oppressed by the demon. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Forgive us, Lord, for limiting you in our thoughts, for lacking spiritual ambition, for failing to ask you to do mighty things in our hearts and lives and failing to trust you. Forgive us for coming to your throne of grace and asking and going away and not believing. Help us to trust you because you are trustworthy and you are a rewarder of those who seek. And I pray, Lord, for those who have come and are seeking your face. Oh, show them, we pray, a token of your mercy and be to them their, por- your, their portion be to them their substance, be to them a great reward. And so, Lord, we ask for those who do not know you, that they would rest upon Jesus Christ and find in him riches untold. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen.